Welcome to Infinite Possibilities, Rise from the Ashes of Your Past, a show where emotional health and resiliency are the keys to moving through all that stuff from your past that's holding you back in your life, business, and relationships, and hijacking the success you desire. Listen in and feel empowered to step into all of your possibilities. Now here's your host, Susan Desenzi. So welcome back to another episode of Infinite Possibilities. Man, I am so happy to be here. You know how I said last week that we're on this roller coaster of adulthood, right? This adulting stuff. And today we're going to dive into kind of laying more of that foundation down by really understanding kind of the controls of the roller coaster so that you'll kind of understand how you can control how fast or slow you go, how many curves and twists and turns there are, how many rises and falls, right? I used to love roller coasters. Love, 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 love them. As I'm older now, though, I just can't seem to ride them anymore without this, like, fear, right? It's crazy. And I think that that's what happens as we grow older, you know, like when we're children, we have this, man, just this innocence, right? We're not afraid of anything. We want to try everything. We want to experience everything. We'll touch stuff. We'll climb things. We'll jump from heights. And we don't really have that fear. And then, you know, our parents or our caregivers tell us, oh, don't do that. Be careful. Watch what you're doing. Or we fall down and we skin our knee or we break a bone, and we start to develop fear. And then that fear just grows and grows and grows as we keep experiencing the world, and it ultimately is what stops us. So I don't want, you know, in laying this foundation down, I don't want things to be sounding like luxury or anything, but I think one of the hardest things that I found as a therapist for over 22 years was that I was always a bit of a rebel, right? Like I I wanted to do things my way because I saw like the soul of people, right? I saw the heart of people. And yet I knew that all the shit they'd been through was kind of getting in their way. And I didn't want therapy and the therapeutic kind of milieu to take years. You'd you'd hear about those stories where somebody would be in therapy for years. And although I didn't necessarily believe in just kind of the short-term focused problem solution kind of therapy either, because I knew that there was so much more to whatever it was they were feeling or experiencing that was kind of giving rise to these problems and these issues that kept happening, I also knew it didn't have to take years. And I think I kind of rebelled against my field because one, it's a business, right? And two, being a business people, you know, like we're trained and we're licensed and we have to go to school for a long time. And depending upon your credentials, you you know, you might have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the degree and the licensure and all this stuff. And so we're trained in these very specific kind of theoretical orientations that's kind of like, I don't know, I kind of liken it to almost like a flowchart, right? So if this is the problem, then turn to page 42, paragraph three, and that's the solution. But if this is added to the problem, then forget going to page 42, go to page 27, paragraph one, and that's the solution. And, you know, I don't want to offend any of my fellow colleagues, but here's the reality. We're human beings, man, and there isn't a one-size-fits-all for everybody. There isn't one approach or one solution or one kind of theoretical orientation that is going to fit for everybody. And it just got me really frustrated through the years because I would watch these people just kind of go through the revolving door of therapy and sometimes even coaching and not really find the solutions that they were seeking. They would never really find resolution and they still had the pain. 
And they might even still be engaging in the same behaviors in a vicious cycle that never seemed to end. And what I found is that that kind of stuff doesn't work. And so through the years, as I was dealing with my own stuff, and I was trying to figure out, you know, like who I was and how I fit in the world and and all of that, I also started to see how I was getting caught up, even before I became a therapist, in all of that kind of expectation, right? My own and other people's, all the ideas that people had about how we should be. I I always talk about the shoulda, woulda, couldas. And so today, you know, I don't want it to be luxury, of course, and I hope that it's not, but I want to share with you a little bit more of that foundation on how we can really understand those controls of the roller coaster that we're on so that we really start to feel empowered like we have the ability to, to actually make some change. Okay, so a little bit more about me and kind of how I got here, I think is important because, you know, it's great to just tell you all this stuff, right? And I could cite a research study here or a research study there, which actually I suck at remembering that stuff. I have this amazing memory with my clients, and I can remember every session I've ever had, mostly I mean, the person would have to kind of sit back down and be in front of me. And then it'd be like, I recall all of the sessions we've ever had and what they've shared with me. My husband teases me and calls me the great memorini (laughs) because I, yeah, it's not always so good in a relationship, right? You have an argument and I can be like a tape recorder. But I can't for the life of me usually remember names of studies or who did it or where it was out of or you know, the year it was done. So thank God for the internet for that one called, you know, Google that, right? But even though I have this like crazy memory, all of that awareness kind of screwed me up in a way. So I think it's kind of important to kind of go back in time a little bit. I said last week that were these spiritual beings having human experiences, and that's kind of where we get screwed up, right? And I know that, you know, many of you have probably heard, oh, were these human beings having spiritual experience? And that's where a lot of that, you know, more new agey kind of mentality comes into play that, you know, for these human beings having spiritual experiences, then we need to filter everything through that kind of spiritual lens. But like I said last week, what I found to be challenging the most for myself and others is that human part, right? Living in this body on this planet with the myriad of people who are on this planet, seven and a half billion people to be exact, right? Who all have different filters and experiences and lenses that they're viewing the world through. They all have opinions and thoughts and feelings and emotions about stuff. And we start getting into, you know, conversations with people and we notice that there's these big differences and then we start to feel bad about what we feel. And it's like, well, why would we do that? And so I remember being four years old, and I went to my parents one day, and I said to them, I I don't even know how I knew these words, but I, I did. And I, I said to them, I said, I want to understand this whole God thing, infinity, the universe, like philosophy. And they looked at each other, and then they looked at me, and they looked at each other again, And then they turned back to me and they said, what? They said, how do you even know those words? And I remember my four-year-old little self being all defiant and stuff going, I don't know. And they said, sweetie, why don't you just go play with your Barbies? And I got really mad, (laughs) right? Because I'm like, I really want to know these things and they're not answering my question. And I put my little four-year-old hands on my little hips and I stomped my little feet and I looked at them and I said, before I turned around and walked away, stomped away, really, I looked at them and I said, I don't want to because they're not real. And I never really did like playing with Barbies and stuff because to me, even at that age, they weren't real. I had an amazing imagination, but I, I had this knowingness like I said last week, that there was something bigger and grander, that there was more to us than just the body. And that was an awesome awareness, but a four-year-old doesn't get that. 
and a five-year-old doesn't get that, and a seven-year-old doesn't get that. And when I was about nine years old, it had been bothering me for five years at that point because I really wanted to understand what this feeling was that there is more to us than just this body. Like, I hear these terms God, and I hear these terms infinity, and you know, my family were very avid outdoors people, so we camped a lot, and we would look up at the stars at night all the time. And my parents would say little things like, look at what's beyond the stars, and look up into the universe. And I just would have this wonderment about me that was like, yeah, where does this lead to? What does this all mean, right? The whole proverbial meaning of life stuff, right? And because I had this question for so long when I was about nine years old then, I don't know why or how. I don't know where the idea came from. It might have been an assignment for school. I don't know. But the book Jonathan Livingston Siegel by Richard Bach came into my kind of world, right? And I remember asking my parents to buy me a copy. And they did. And I read the book. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. Now, it's just a story about a seagull, right? And and Richard Bach did an amazing job of writing this story in such a beautiful way that was really eye-opening to, you know, the seagull's plight, right? But he also wrote it from a very philosophical kind of point of view. And somehow at nine, I got that. I understood what he was saying. And I couldn't put the book down. I read it so many times that I wore the book out and my parents had to buy me, you know, a new copy. And so that then led to me going on a quest to kind of understand this whole philosophy thing, this religion thing, this, this, you know, God thing, infinity thing. And because I was raised in a family where there were two religions in my family, my mother was Jewish and my father was of a Christian faith, and neither of them were very practicing, but we were raised, my two older brothers and I, were raised with an understanding of kind of their belief systems. And fortunately, I had very progressive parents for the time. They gave us the choice as we grew older to kind of choose for ourselves. So we were never locked into you must believe this because I said so kind of thing. And because of that, then I started wanting to read anything I could get my hands on. Because this awareness, when I was four, that we're bigger than what we seem to be, this knowingness inside that we are love at the core, and that we are this divinity, it really screwed me up as the assault started happening, because I couldn't understand how I could feel this pain, this emotional pain, this dismissiveness, this hurt, this anger, all of those emotional things that I was feeling as this five-year-old and nine-year-old and 14-year-old, and it didn't seem like anybody else really understood or could help me move through it. Shit, I, I was even blamed for some of these things, not by my parents, but I was even blamed for some of these things by some authority figures, right? So I have a crazy story. So I'm nine years old, this this set of incidences occur, and, and this show isn't about that, so I don't want to go into a whole lot with that. I talk very freely about it, but again, the, the show isn't, it's, it's about our infinite possibilities and kind of how we can really learn to become friends with our pain and move through it so that we don't keep being trapped by it and keep engaging in the same behaviors over and over or having, you know, the same thoughts that really stop us and hold us back from living our gifts and our talents and our potential and our possibility. So anyway, these series of incidents happen when I'm nine, and the last incident, you know, police were involved and, and all of the kind of rigmarole that happens, you know, when something like that happens. Now, remember, I'm 55, so this was 1973, and the laws were very different back then, but there was still a lot of police involvement. And I remember the detectives coming to my house, like the day after, to, you know, interview me and question me and all this stuff. 
And, you know, I, I'm nine years old, right? Like, I, I don't even understand all this. I just know the fear I felt and I know all the, the experiences I had and all that stuff. And so, you know, these are police officers and they're authority figures. And I was taught that you trust them and they're there to protect you and serve you and help you. And and they're talking to me and they're telling me that they have this thing called a lie detector machine. And I, I'd never heard of that before. And I'm just like, oh, you know, what is that? And, you know, they go on to explain that this lie detector machine, air quotes around machine, that is something, it's like a box. And that they take a story written on a piece of paper and they feed it into the box. And it's got two lights on the top, a yellow light and a green light. And if they feed the story into the box and a yellow light comes up, it means that the story is a lie. And if a green light comes up, then it means the story is the truth. And that they'd already fed his story into the machine and that it had come up green. Well, if you haven't figured out by now, I was always a little bit of a rebel. And in my defiant little rebel nine-year-old self, knowing that I knew the truth of what had happened, I looked at them and I said, well, then I guess your machine is broken because it's wrong. But the reason I'm sharing this story is simply because for the next seven years, till I was 16 years old, I truly believed that a lie detector machine was a box that had two lights on the top and that you put a piece of paper into. Now, that was my first experience of really learning I couldn't trust the world around me. I mean, it was bad enough that two other incidences had already happened by age nine, but I was a pretty happy kid. You know, I was, I had an amazing family. We camped every weekend. We took vacations. We had a pretty darn good childhood and upbringing. So it wasn't my family that was the problem. It was the outside world. It was you know, like these police officers who basically threatened my parents that they would have to be, you know, forced to take a look at the home environment I lived in if they kept pushing the issue to press charges. And it terrified my parents. And there's more to the story than that. But again, this show's not about that. It terrified my parents, so they backed off. And until both their deaths, they felt incredibly guilty about that because they feel they didn't fight for me enough. Now, I never felt they didn't fight for me enough. I knew that they fought for me the best they knew how back then. But I, as a child, couldn't understand how these police officers didn't understand the truth, right? I'm just this innocent little kid who's experienced these little horrible things and these police officers who I've been taught to trust and look up to and know that they're going to be there to protect and serve and help are basically saying I'm a liar and they're basically threatening my parents that they'll take me out of the home and put me in, I guess foster care would have been around back then if my parents kept pushing the issue. So, you know, those experiences, on top of having this awareness that we're so much more really screwed me up because I just couldn't understand how I could feel this level of pain and why and how there was nobody or nothing out there that could really teach me how to move through it. So, you know, I lived with all of that for so many years and then, you know, worked to find a way through it. Nobody ever really taught me how to move through it but I would read and I would question things and I would ask why all the time, which, like I said last week, sometimes can be awesome. And sometimes asking that question can just, you know, suck. And so as I would read about religion and philosophy, I wanted to understand what were the commonalities between all of us as human beings? What was this thing at our core that kind of all brought us together that would allow me the freedom to understand how to move through all the shit. And so I dove in. Now, other people, 
especially if I was older, I cannot say that I would have done things the same way. When I was older, if those had been my experiences then and my questions then, I may have used other coping mechanisms like addictions or distraction or avoiding or numbing out somehow to avoid that pain because, my God, we're so afraid of the pain. We are so afraid that if we feel the pain, that somehow it will destroy us. And so because I had this thread of awareness from age four that were more than our bodies, it kept me going. And I just kept searching. And I wanted to understand. And then I would have experiences too, like, you know, again, nine years old must have been a really pivotal year for me because a whole lot of shit happened that year. I'm nine years old and my girlfriend's mother, an adult, is asking me about relationships. Wait, what? Oh, I'm nine. (laughs) What the hell does a nine-year-old know about relationships? So I don't know if it was something about me, if it was something in the way I spoke, or if it was it was having this awareness since I was four. I don't know what it was to this day. I, I, I have no clue. I didn't have a clue then. I don't have a clue today. But I remember her coming to me and talking to me about her relationship with her boyfriend and asking me for quote unquote advice. And I had no clue what to say. Other than I just looked at this woman, this adult woman who seemed to be in a lot of pain, and I allowed that compassion and that caringness to kind of come through, and I just let words spill out of my mouth, and I I have no idea if it helped her or not. That wasn't the intention or the goal, but what it did do was it helped me to balance all the other stuff that I was feeling, that kind of like dark cloud that kind of felt like it always hung over me, right? And I had that dark cloud for a really, really, really long time. And the cool thing about kind of understanding, you know, who we are at the core, and then being able to learn how to become friends with our pain and not being so afraid of it, and knowing that it really won't destroy us, The cool thing about that is that we get to decide then how fast or slow we go on this roller coaster of this adultingness, right? Like, how many turns are there going to be? How fast do we go? Do I want to stop for a while? Do I want to go faster? And I think, you know, part of the reason why I developed such a fierce passion for helping people move through this and what ultimately led me to become a therapist was that actually, since I was four years old, I wanted to be an actress. I think because I had this level of kind of understanding about human behavior and human nature, and don't ask me please to explain how I knew, I I can't to this day at 55 tell you how I knew, I just did. My whole life, I've had the ability, the gift, the talent, I suppose you'd say, to really understand people and what drives us and know things about them. And so I think because of that feeling and this compassion and the fact that my uncle was an actor and I'd watched him perform in lots of theater and some television and movies, and I was awed by by how he could take this this character that was made up and imaginary and bring it to life, that I went, oh, that's my way to take all this stuff I feel and turn it into kind of like a character or a set of characters that, you know, would be helpful for other people. But I also watched him struggle for 15 years. We lived in the Chicago area and He wasn't willing to move to New York or LA at that time in the 60s and early 70s. And I think watching him struggle for so long, it also then created this kind of fear in me that said, oh, I I don't know if I'm good enough. There's that imposter syndrome kind of good enoughness again, right? Rearing its head. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if, you know... I want to move away from family. I don't know, you know, God, look at how good he is and he's struggling so much. So would I be able to make it? 
And even as a child, I kind of, you know, didn't care about what people thought of me because I was a rebel and I kind of always beat to my own drum. I cared a whole lot more then about whether or not people didn't like me or whether they'd reject me. You know, it would affect me so much more deeply then than it does today. And so I think all of that stopped me from kind of pursuing that dream and following kind of that passion. And then as time went on and other things kind of happened in my life and another, you know, incident occurred, it just became like more real to me that that was not going to be a dream I was ever going to follow. And yet, you know, having this awareness inside and this compassion and this caringness and this and this passion too for wanting to see people see themselves like how I saw them, right? In their in their divinity, in their truth, in their power and their potential. I I really had no clue how I was going to, you know, make that happen until I got much older. And it really wasn't until I was 28. And like I shared with you last week, when I spoke briefly about how at 28, I nearly committed suicide. Well, that wasn't the first time that I had really seriously thought about suicide. And I, and I want to be clear that it wasn't because I was so unhappy or had such a miserable childhood. Again, I had beautiful, amazing parents I'm very close to both my brothers still to this day. They're both still alive, thank God. I just couldn't handle the dark cloud. I couldn't handle the pain. And it's weird saying that now because now I understand the pain and I've become friends with the pain and I've learned to move through the pain and I'm not afraid of the pain anymore. But for all those years... I was conditioned into believing that the pain was bad. I was conditioned into believing that you're supposed to just walk around life with this kind of Pollyanna-ish, happy, happy, joy, joy attitude, smiling all the time, never allowing yourself to be angry or frustrated or sad or hurt or, you know, depressed or confused. And I realized that we've all kind of learned that, that we've all kind of learned that we just have to kind of like, you know, suffer through. But eventually it catches up to us. And if you, you know, you push something down long enough, it's going to explode outward at one point, right? Because it's going to build up. It's kind of like putting a, a teapot on the stove, right? And you fill it up with water and you turn it on high. But you plugged up all the holes. And eventually, as the steam builds up in that teapot, as the water's boiling, something's going to give. Either that those plugs are going to just be explosively shot out of their holes, or the whole teapot, depending on what kind it is, is just going to literally explode and break apart. And I realized that this is kind of how we've been taught to operate. And so when that situation happened when I was 28 and I had, you know, this really powerful intention to end my life and I wrote this suicide note to my son, I, I not only recalled the four-year-old me standing in front of the mirror with that belief that, you know, anything was possible like I talked about last week, but I realized that this was the third time I had actually thought about ending my life. This was the third time that I was making some kind of like subtle attempt. The two other times weren't attempts where it landed me in the hospital. Actually, nobody ever even knew what I had done. But the first time I took a, a bunch of Tylenol thinking that would somehow end my life and the second time I took a small serrated knife and when I put it against my skin, my wrist, and I created little dots in my skin from the serrated edges and it kind of hurt and I went, ow, I realized that I don't really want to die. What I did want is for the pain to go away. And what I did want is for someone, anyone, to kind of show me how to deal with the pain. And not just manage it, 
not just push it down and push it away and try to stuff it in, you know, a, a box in the back of the closet, but how to really move through it. And I think it was during those times that I kind of developed the passion to let go of the dream of being an actress and instead take those gifts and talents that I'd been given, the gift of awareness that we're more than our body, the gift of being able to understand human behavior and human nature and what drives us, the gift of being able to kind of feel and see and know what other people feel without knowing how I know it, and take my own experiences and really help to teach others how to do the same. And I think that was also at the point then where I knew that I was going to have to find that way. And again, didn't know it for, you know, many, many years that I would ultimately become a therapist and a, and a coach. But I think I knew that I needed to find something that really made an impact for others. Because I could see how the world was shifting and changing and how there was more fear being created. I was watching as I grew older, and again, even other experiences that, you know, we all have as we grow older, I was watching how people were getting stuck, and they were getting caught up in, you know, their their childhoods and what happened to them, and they were kind of staying in that, what we call the victim mindset, right? Where they just kind of let that stop them. And I became kind of terrified, actually, that if that continued, we would ultimately destroy the beauty of the planet. And I don't mean like environmentally or anything, which unfortunately, that does seem to be kind of happening now, right? But I mean, from a human perspective, right? Human connection, and intimacy, and interaction, and lovingness. It's like as I grew older, I watched the the attitude shifting and changing. Like, you know, just going into a grocery store, let's say, right? You go into a grocery store back when I was a little younger, and people were very polite, and they said please, and they said thank you. And as I grew older, I started to see that, you know, not happening as often. And people being more edgy and stressed and more angry and frustrated and worried and fearful of things. And that shaped their behavior. And I think, you know, all of that helped me to realize that we need to do something about this. And so, you know, one of the things about my work and the reason my passion is so incredibly, like, I live and breathe emotional freedom. I live and breathe helping others learn to be friends with their emotions and their pain and and learn to the tools and the skills they need to move through it. Because there is no other freedom like it. You really can, and I don't want to sound all, you know, woo-woo-y here, but you really can live in heaven on earth in a happier, more joyous state of like gratitude and lovingness when you know how to really be that emotional master for your own life. And again, it's not for anybody else's life. It's just for your life. So, you know, this episode so far seems to me (laughs) all about me. And I'm sorry for that in the sense that I'm apologizing because it's not about me. This is about you. But I can't really kind of teach you and share with you these these tools and skills that you need unless I help you to understand kind of how I came to them and kind of who I am and how I got here so you can get how you can kind of take that and apply it to your own life. And so kind of the beauty of moving through all this and kind of learning to become friends with your pain and moving through it is that it's the scariest thing you're ever going to do. I'll be honest with you. It is the hardest and the scariest thing that you will ever face. But 
once you face it head on, you'll realize that it wasn't ever really that scary at all. And the reason that it feels so scary initially is because your mind has created a whole scenario and set of stories around that fear and that pain. So one of the things that is important then in laying kind of this next part of the foundation and kind of learning the controls of the roller coaster ride that that you're on is that it's important to take it a step further from what I talked about last week, where I talked a little bit about the brain and a little bit about the mind. I think, you know, it's important to go a little deeper today so that you can really kind of understand how we truly take the world in as a whole. So if you remember last week, I talked about how the brain doesn't know what's real or not real. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and and talk about the brain and the mind from two very different perspectives. So bear with me on this. And if there's anything that is confusing for you or you don't get, please reach out to me and let me know, right? I am more than happy to address specific issues that you have or anything that you hear during the course of all these episodes that doesn't resonate with you or it's confusing or you're just not quite sure what I mean, please reach out and let me know that and I will be more than happy to clarify on a future episode. All right, so let's approach this whole how we take the world in and how we how we kind of develop this pain to begin with, these emotions to begin with, and hopefully it'll be clear. So just like last week where I said that emotions are kind of illusionary, because they're based on our mind's interpretation, now it's time to look at both that a little bit deeper. All right, so let's take the brain. We're going to just talk about the physical side of us as a human being for a minute. So we have this physical beingness. Now, as this physical being, we have a nature and a goal. And our nature and the goal of our physical body, of this brain side to us, is survival. Okay, the nature and the goal is the same. Our whole physical structure is always in survival mode. Now, I'm not talking like I did a little bit last week about the fight or flight response. That's intense need for survival, right? I'm just talking as this human being in this body, our brain doesn't care if you have a friend or if you broke up with someone, or if you failed a class or lost a job. All your brain cares about, think of it like a supercomputer, it's running the systems of the body in order to ensure survival. So let's say you don't have enough calcium in one area of your body, and your brain knows that that's dangerous, it's hit a dangerous level, it will automatically take calcium from another area of your body where it knows that it's not going to hurt it as much by taking some from that area, and it's going to redirect it to that other area that needs it more. Because your brain's goal and its nature is just simply survival. On the human side to us, though, there's this mind, this consciousness. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it Consciousness, mind, grace, spirit, soul, like we're not talking religious or spiritual beliefs. We're just talking whatever you choose to want to call it for the purposes of this. I'm just going to say the mind and consciousness. On this human side to us, we have a nature and a goal as well. But on the human side, our nature and goal is very, very different. Our fundamental human nature as a human being is to love and be loved. That is it. And all you ever have to do is look at a baby to notice that, right? When a baby is first born, the only thing that baby knows when it's born is that it now hears itself make sound and it feels touch on its skin. That when it was in the womb, It obviously didn't feel touch, and it couldn't hear sound the same way as when the baby is born. The baby couldn't hear itself make sound, but when it's born, 
and the baby cries, the baby can now hear itself make sound. Now, the baby doesn't know anything yet, hasn't created any associations yet. All the baby knows is that when there's this uncomfortable feeling in the tummy that we later call hunger, the baby makes this sound, wah, 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 and a bottle or a breast is shoved into that baby's mouth, and the baby suckles on that, gets the food, the nutrients, right? And that uncomfortable feeling in their tummy goes away. So then the baby returns to a state of homeostasis. The baby returns to a state of comfort and what we might perceive as happiness. Now, the baby cries again, and someone, the caregiver, mama, whomever, papa, takes a bottle or a breast and puts it in the child's mouth. But this time, the baby's still crying, because the baby doesn't have the pain and the hunger in the tummy. Maybe the baby has a dirty diaper. So the baby only knows how to communicate through that sound right now. That's They're learning that association that if I make this sound, that uncomfortable feeling will go away. And so because the uncomfortable feeling is still, you know, in their diaper, they're going to cry until it gets resolved. And so the caregiver says, oh, maybe the baby's not hungry. Let's check their diaper and checks their diaper, sees that, that it needs to be changed and cleans them up, and then the baby returns to a state of comfort, a state of homeostasis, a state of what we might perceive again as to be happy. So the baby's beginning to learn these associations. If I do this, then this will happen. If I cry and I have this hunger pain in my tummy, I will get fed. Now, again, they don't have language at that point, but they're learning the actions, all right? So because our nature is to love and be loved, and and this baby is beginning to learn these associations, when you look at a baby, do you ever get the feeling you're just looking at pure innocence and pure love? You just look into their eyes, and they're just amazed and in wonderment of everything around them. They want to touch everything. They want to feel everything. They want to look at everything. And we can say as adults, it's because they're curious and they're learning, and that's true, but it's also because their nature is simply to view the world through that pure eye. So our nature is to love and be loved. Now, our goal as a human being is feedback, some form of feedback. And feedback could be acknowledgement, approval, awareness, validation, or acceptance. Those are five typical ways that we as humans gain feedback. So I kind of go to a friend and I say, hey, I just bought this new shirt. I'm going to try it on. Tell me what you think. I'm going to share that experience with my friend. And my friend is going to say, oh, I like it or I don't like it. They're giving me this feedback as to what I ask them. Here's where things get complicated, though, and why it is so hard as this adult to feel the emotions we feel and to move through all the shit that we have experienced. This is why it's hard to deconstruct all that conditioning from our past. So our nature on this human consciousness side is to love and be loved. The goal is feedback, some form of awareness, validation, acceptance, approval, acknowledgement. But there's two things that are always in play for that feedback, and they are always in competition with each other. It's called a hope for gain and a fear of loss. I want this, but I got that in return. So I wanted my friend to say that she liked my new shirt, but instead she said it looks horrible on you. I wanted my parents to be proud of me, but instead they told me I could have done better. I want my children to follow the rules, but instead they they always disregard the rules and come in late. I wanted my teacher to say, good job, Susan, but instead my teacher said, yeah, I know you didn't do your best. And, and the experiences are truly limitless as to how it fits into that hope for gain and fear of loss piece. I want this, 
I hope for this. I'm looking at a gain of this, but what I get is the fear or the loss. And remember I said last week that we are hardwired in our brains, in our physiology, to move toward pleasure and away from pain. And yet what happens is as we experience the world around us and we start to have these experiences as children and as teenagers and as an adult, we start to feel those losses and feel those fears and feel that pain. And because we want to move away from it, we then even become afraid of the fear and afraid of the losses. And that is where we get caught up. That is where we can get tripped up to such a degree that it can literally stop us from following our purposes, our passions, our potential, our possibility. It can stop us from holding on to those dreams that we have and really knowing who we are at the core. And we are never, ever going to be a race of people who really step into our potential and our power if we don't become friends with our emotions and with the pain instead of always trying to manage it and push it away and shove it away. If we keep doing that through pills, through addictions, through medications, through all the different ways that we can numb out and distract and avoid it, we're going to eventually crumble as a society. Now, we may not see that in our lifetime, even if you're in your 20s. But I guarantee you that over time, if we continue living in this fear of the pain and the fear of the fear, we are never really going to kind of step into our full power and our full potential. And my whole life's work, all of my life's experiences even, have been kind of the foundation for me to learn how to step into my infinite possibility and my potential and my power and how it's it's meant to help others just like you have gifts and talents that are meant to help me you know i think that the biggest kind of challenge is that we live with this pain and we think that if we talk about it, we are weak. Or it means that we're truly not good enough. Because somehow if I was good enough, I should be able to handle it. I should be able to move through this stuff. I'm stronger than this, damn it. My parents raised me to be a fighter. They raised me to go after what I want. And they raised me to not give in to that stuff. That's weak. That's pathetic. You shouldn't feel that way. But the truth is we do. And I think that because we've learned to kind of develop these expectations about ourselves, when we're looking at that mind consciousness piece, and we're seeing that our nature is to love and be loved, and our goal is feedback, and we wanted the feedback in a certain way, and we never got it, that it must be us. We must have done something wrong. I must have said something wrong, I must have done something wrong, or I didn't do it right or well enough, or I didn't do it the way they wanted me to. Therefore, I deserve to have this pain. It's my fault. And I blame myself. And when that happens, then it's going to be really tough for anybody to kind of tell us otherwise. It's going to be really hard for anybody to kind of, you know, share with us kind of how to move through it because we're going to be convinced that we're the problem. And you don't have to believe me. I know that I'm not really anybody to you, that you don't really know me yet. And you probably don't know me in person. And so really, who am I to tell you these things, right? I'm no different than you. The only difference is that I learned how to not give in to the fear because I did give in to the fear for so many years, and it nearly ended my life. It nearly destroyed me. I learned how to let go of the things that I thought I was supposed to be, and learned how to make the choice of who I wanted to be, and who I was meant to be. I learned how to not let my experiences define me and rule me. 
And I learned how to really become friends with the pain and realize that it's not the big scary monster I always thought it was. And I learned that my body and my mind have warning systems. They're indicating to me that there's a problem. And I learned how to listen. And what I mean by that is like, let's take your physical body, for example, right? So your body has an internal warning system that is letting you know, you know, there's a problem here. And if it continues to be a problem and you ignore it, the warning system of the body from a pain perspective will only increase. Like if you have a bad infection and you're not paying attention to it, eventually the infection will get so bad, the pain will become so bad that you will have no choice but to address it and to face it. Well, on the emotional side, it's the same thing. On this human consciousness side, on the mind side, it's the same thing. If there's a problem, an emotional feeling that you're having, a behavior that you keep engaging in, if there is a trigger that is consistently happening for you, it's your emotional body's warning signal to you that there is an issue there that needs to be addressed and resolved and looked at, not shoved away and pushed down. And so it's important that we take a look at the emotional body and its warning systems so that we can begin to understand how to face the things that our mind has said has been so damn scary and how we've become so afraid to kind of face that pain. Let me ask you, just think about this. You're here right now listening. Whatever you've experienced in your past, it's already gone. It's already in the past. You're here today. Another perfect example of this is like, let's say you cut yourself, okay? You don't ever have to tell, let's say you cut your, your finger, right? You're, you're, I just actually did this not too long ago. That's why it popped into my head. So let's say you're in the kitchen and you're cutting something up and you accidentally cut your finger. All right, so in that moment that you've cut your finger, you're like, ow, that really hurts. And maybe it's bleeding. And you're like, oh, okay, what do I need to do? I need to, I need to stop the bleeding. I need to put, you know, like a tissue on it. And then I need to, depending on how bad it is, it, you know, let's just assume it doesn't need stitches. You look at it and you go, oh, well, let me put a little, uh, you know, kind of an antibiotic ointment on there and let me wrap it in a Band-Aid or a gauze or something. And then I don't have to pay attention to it anymore. I don't ever have to look at my finger and tell my brain to go instruct all the cells to go to that part of my finger and fix and repair it and regrow skin. I don't have to tell my brain to tell my body to stop the bleeding my body inherently knows exactly what to do to heal that cut all by itself. I don't ever have to be involved in it from this mind consciousness perspective. But on the mind side, now we get all up in our mind's business now, don't we? And we think that we know better. Or I should say that the mind thinks it knows better, right? The mind being the protector and the sentry and the guard to all the incoming data that's coming in, your mind is the thing that's creating the filters and the lenses that you view through, that you view your life through, that you view your experiences through. Your mind is the one that's creating the barriers to being able to move through it or feel like you have to shove it down and push it away. So if there's an injury to your emotional body, essentially like a trauma or, a, or an experience that you had, now, all of a sudden, your mind starts putting all of its spin on it, and it thinks it knows best how to kind of move you through it. And all of that is based on the experiences you've had up to that point. So if we learned kind of how to view the injuries to our emotional body, the pain, the hurts, the angers, the confusions, all the experiences that we've had, if we learn to kind of look at the emotional body through like the lens we do with our physical body and trust that if we just face it, 
put a little antibiotic ointment on it and a Band-Aid around it, that the body will heal itself, we would be able to heal those emotional parts of ourselves. But the Band-Aid and the antibiotic ointment that you would use for your emotional pains aren't to cover it up like you do with a physical cut. You actually have to face it. You actually have to welcome it. You actually have to become friends with that pain so that you can diminish the fears about it. So I hope that that makes sense, right? This can be really hard stuff, and it can be really, really scary. What do I do then if I, you know, have all these experiences and I don't have the tools and the skills? Well, you start accumulating the tools and skills. There is a ton of stuff out there to help you learn how to begin to move through all these pieces. There are a myriad of ways and people that you can learn from and, you know, ask questions of and listen to and grow with so that you can start developing and practicing the tools and the skills that you have or that you'll, you'll accumulate so that you can move through all these pieces and no longer be trapped by them. That's real emotional freedom. That's real emotional mastery. Emotional mastery isn't, I'm happy, happy, joy, joy all the time, yay. That's not emotional mastery. Emotional mastery is, I can feel the hurt and the anger and the sadness and the frustration, but I don't stay stuck in it anymore. You've probably heard things like, you can rewrite the chapter of your life, or write a new chapter, or stop rereading the same story over and over again. It's the same thing. That's how I was able to finally make the choice to live. And I'm not going to sit here, I told you that I'm as transparent as transparent can be, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that from age 28 to 55 now, the last 27 years, that I haven't had, you know, dark thoughts ever, or I haven't ever felt a bit depressed or sad or down or blue or frustrated or angry or hurt or confused. Of course I have. But the only difference is that I don't stay in the story of it anymore. I allow myself kind of the, the pity party of feeling the hurt or the emotion. I feel, I feel whatever I feel for a little while as I'm kind of unpeeling those layers and like tending to the wound, right? And taking care of it and allowing myself to really understand the layers of it so that I can then peel it away and really move through it. Because after all, we're human. I don't think there's a single person on this planet who never feels anything negative. I just would bet there isn't. So remember, you're more than who you think you are. You're not your past experiences. There are ways to move through it. And one of the things I'd like to leave you with, you know, today is to kind of ask yourself, maybe write down, or again, if you don't like writing, record it just on your phone. Your phone probably has a recording app. If you have a little recorder, that's awesome. If you have a program on your computer, that's awesome too. But if you don't like writing, then just record it and ask yourself, what have I been so afraid of? If I were to live my ideal life, what am I afraid of in living that ideal life? And a second question is, what stops me from living that ideal life? What stops me from living that ideal life? I hope that that's helpful. Recognize this is a process. And over all the episodes from here on out, even when I have guests on, we're always going to make sure that you have one strategy or tool or skill or an exercise that you can take away each episode so that you can begin to unpeel your own layers, recognize these are the controls of the roller coaster, and you are ultimately the driver, and you get to decide 
how fast or slow you go through this. There's no destination you have to achieve. I know it's so super cliche, but it really is about enjoying the journey. Even when the journey is kind of scary and sucky and painful, please trust me when I tell you that that's the only way into living that heaven on earth. So I hope that you have an amazingly beautiful week. I will see you next week, and we will kind of tie up the last little bits of laying this base foundation, and then we're going to start diving into having a few guests on so we can really hear the challenges they all faced and how they moved through it. So have an amazing week. Check out the show notes for any relevant information and for these questions. And I will see you next week. Ciao for now. You've been listening to Infinite Possibilities, Rise from the Ashes of Your Past, where you're letting go, discovering who you are, and taking your life back. See the show notes for important links on today's show and go to the infinitelypossible.com for free resources feedback or to let Susan know what you'd like to see on the show.